Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Well, we thank the Lord for Maria and Letty and for Mike accompanying them on the drums. Take your Bible, if you have one, and turn to the book of Joshua, the 24th chapter. And today, I, in the earlier worship service, I began with verse 1 and read almost to the end of the chapter in the interest of time. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15, and then we'll look at most of the other as we progress our way through the message that comes from this great chapter in the Word of God. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, reads as follows. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Stuart Briscoe, who for many decades has been a leader in evangelicalism in the English-speaking world, made this comment as he introduced a message he gave to a large group of pastors. He said, my Christian life is a lot like an old iron bedstead firm on both ends, but sagging in the middle. He was talking about his justification, the biblical term. It's a, a technical term borrowed from the legal system of Rome. If one were justified in a Roman court, that meant that that person had been declared not guilty. Jesus did that for us, not guilty. That's what he proclaims to us and about us when we trust in him alone for eternal life. The other end of this sagging iron bedstead, if that were true in your life like it was in this man Stuart Briscoe's life at the time he spoke, it would be glorification. That's the term that the New Testament uses for what's going to happen either when we die in Christ or Christ comes again and receives us to himself. In either case, he will take us with him to be with him forever in heaven. He's prepared a place for us. But what about the intervening years? For some of us, that amounts to decades, not just years. And among those who have known Christ for decades, some of us have known Him for over half a century. But we, not unlike Mr. Briscoe, find ourselves sagging in the middle. By the way, nothing ruins a good rest like a 
sagging mattress, right? We want a firm mattress. And I would suggest to you today that Christ would want you and me to be on solid ground, not just knowing that we have trusted Him for eternal life and not just that we're going to heaven, but in this interim period. Do you ever battle your own selfishness in this life? The Bible calls it the flesh. It's our personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. And what we want to learn today is how we can overcome that kind of sagging Christianity. We find it in this passage of Scripture, and it's rather clear to me because I've studied it so much in preparation. Hopefully it will become more clear to you after we work our way through this section of Scripture. We are to serve the Lord. Seven times in this broader context, that concept of our serving the Lord surfaces. Serve the Lord. Perhaps you're aware in the Bible of how people who were very much in tune with God are described as being servants of the Lord. Some of the people that are more notable would be Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and by association, even our fathers, we too, if we're people of faith, are children of Abraham, spiritually speaking. Well, the Bible says about him in Psalm 105, 42, that he was a servant of God. Moses, the great lawgiver, is described in more than one place, Daniel 9, 11, for instance. Exodus 14, 21, he is described along with Abraham, his predecessor, as being a servant of the Lord. Joshua, the one whose words we are reading today and studying together, he is described in this section of Scripture as being a servant of the Lord. David, the great king of Israel, describes himself as, I am your servant, O God. And then if we go to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian in that era, at least and possibly, if not probably, of all eras of Christianity, that man would introduce himself normally in this way. I am Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And the word bondservant means slave, literally, in the Greek language. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And then no less a personage than Jesus. He says this about himself, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We're part of that many if we trusted Christ. He came for the express purpose, and we tend to go to ourselves here, but I think we need to begin with God. He came to serve the Lord. It was his mission from God the Father that in becoming a man, it was he who was the only one qualified to save us from our sins. And when he gets to the end of his life in John 17, he says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do, Father. I have served you. And he uses the word serve, which means as a slave. I have enslaved myself to you, Father, so that I could be a servant to all those whom you want me to save. Amazing, isn't it? 
we, as people who know Christ, we are told to serve. Not just occasionally. Service should be our middle name as followers of Jesus because we imitate Him. In the Psalms, one reference I'll mention is in the 100th Psalm. Many of you know this. We're to serve the Lord with gladness, not with sadness or reluctance, but with gladness. What a privilege to serve the King of the universe. None of us holds that kind of position in this kingdom we call earth and the world. But in the kingdom of God, each one of you is part of a royal priesthood. And what is a priest to do? The role of a priest is to put man in touch with God and God in touch with man. A priest is a servant. We are part of a royal priesthood. So we can serve Him with gladness. And if you're not, I encourage you to develop the habit. You will not regret it in any way. So serving the Lord. How do we serve the Lord? Well, this passage of Scripture very clearly gives two ways we serve the Lord. The first of which, look at verse 14 again, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. We serve the Lord by fearing the Lord. And that's foreign to our way of thinking. Fearing God is something that we have pushed back deep into the recesses of the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament God, we say. Well, let me remind you that the Old Testament God is represented in Jesus Christ too. And He wants you to fear the Lord. He knows it's the only way you can fulfill your purpose. And by virtue of your fulfilling your purpose or my fulfilling my purpose is we will be fulfilled. There's no fulfillment apart from being in sync with the Lord. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. In His right hand, there are pleasures. Get the word? Pleasures forevermore. Fear the Lord. Keep your place here and turn with me to Psalm 130 for just a moment. How do the fear of the Lord and joy go together? How can I be peaceful if I'm afraid of the Lord? Well, I think Psalm 130 will begin to clear that up for us a bit. In verse 3 of Psalm 130, the psalmist writes, If you, Lord, should keep track of my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think about that. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If we know the plan of salvation and we see what it costs Jesus in order to save us, we would shudder at the thought that our sin was what put Him on the cross. And it was the love of God the Father for us that He actually instigated and executed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You have not read your Bible carefully if you do not know that. Read it carefully. He's the one who initiates everything. That's why I asked Sam to read from Ephesians chapter 2. What do we glean from that? 
Well, first off, we are told it's not a flattering picture which is painted, but it's a true picture of what state we were in when we entered this world. We were DOA spiritually. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You could not do anything, therefore, to make yourself right with God. But lo and behold, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit collaborated prehistorically in eternity, and they had a plan of salvation. And it's talked about in the first chapter of Ephesians. You know what the plan was? That before the creation of the world, God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted and according to Roman law, which was the background of that statement, a child who was natural born could be disowned legally, written out of any kind of inheritance. But persons who were adopted could not suffer the same fate. Good for us, right? We have been adopted in Christ. In love, He predestined, God the Father did, in conjunction with Jesus and the Spirit. And the Bible says, we were redeemed by the blood of Christ. We were saved by the giving of life, by the taking of life by God the Father of Jesus the Son and the giving of life, voluntarily doing that. The Bible says not only are we to serve the Lord with gladness, it also says in Psalm 2, serve Him with fear. These two things go together. They're like two sides of the same coin. When I really know what state I was in, how I didn't have a snowball's chance in that state. And then I see what lengths God went to secure my salvation. The result is fearing God in the best sense of the word, being grateful to Him, knowing that He's not going to X you out of the kingdom once you're in His family. No. But it's a stimulus that we would serve the Lord. There's a song that many of you are familiar with. I had a debt that I could not pay, and then he paid a debt he didn't know. That's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? It was so true. Those who fear God are people who really know the Lord and serve the Lord. But I'd like you to glance over to verse 24 of this chapter for a moment. And before you read that, get yourself situated at verse 24. And let's go back to verse 16. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. I mean, they wanted to respond positively to this challenge that was given to serve the Lord and put away all their false gods. They said, heaven forbid that that would happen in our lives. We want to serve the Lord. And then verse 17, for the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. They said the right thing. And from the house of bondage, they said the right thing. 
and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the people through whose midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord for He is our God. Boy, that sounds like a great confession, doesn't it? Look how Joshua responds to it, though. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord. Wait a minute, Josh. You said, this is the way that we serve the Lord. We fear the Lord. That is the way you say, Josh, we fear the Lord. And we're saying we want to do that. But he goes on to say, our God is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. In the book of Exodus 34, verse 7, this is what the Word of God says to all of us this morning, that our God is a God who is loaded with loving kindness. He is the God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That covers the whole range of sin in its basic meaning and its expression it's missing the mark God has established for us, and that would be perfection. And the other side of it is it speaks about rebellion. And God forgives all of that when people understand who He is and believe and trust in Him. But the Bible goes on to say, but God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God's Perfect holy nature requires something be done to pay the price of sin against Him. And of course, as we've looked at already, Christ did just that for us. And these people were probably getting at least a little antsy and probably really agitated. The Scripture goes on to say here in verse 20, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods... Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. Wow, you're going against what you said, Joshua. And the people said to the Lord, no, but we will serve the Lord. It's like, no, we will serve the Lord. There was a turning internally in them, not just a churning in their emotions, but in their souls. They said, okay, okay. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord. There was a transaction which occurred, and Joshua noted that. The Spirit of God noted that. And they were really serious now. They said, We are witnesses against ourselves. We are serving the Lord. Verse 23, Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then verse 24 says, And the people said to Joshua, Listen carefully. We will serve the Lord our God. Hadn't they said that already? But notice what they add to that statement. We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey His voice. The word obey literally is listen to. We will listen to His voice. We won't get secondhand communication. We're going to be on intimate terms with you. God, we're going to hear your voice. We don't need you anymore, Joshua, to tell us. We don't need Moses to tell us. You're going to speak to us. And we'll get to that as to what that means a little later. We serve the Lord by fearing 
the Lord. Fearing the Lord certainly includes a recognition that our salvation is of Him. In fact, if we took time to read the first 15 verses of Joshua 24, this is what we would discover. At over 15, at least 16 times, maybe 17, in those verses describing the saving work, the redeeming work of God in Israel, he uses the pronoun I, 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 I. It's like a broken record. What was God saying and what is the Spirit saying to us? Our salvation has nothing to do with our effort. We saw that, did we not, in Ephesians 2? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's God's work. God delivered them out of bondage after four centuries. God delivered them through the Red Sea. God delivered them through the wilderness experience. God delivered them from the enemies which they encountered when they entered into the promised land. God delivered, God delivered, God delivered. It was He who saved us. And when we understand that, we want to fear Him. We serve the Lord by fearing Him. We also serve the Lord, secondly, by forsaking all lesser gods. Hasn't this passage taught us that? Go back to verse 14 in the middle. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river. That would be beyond the Euphrates River. It would be what we know as Babylon. When Abraham left that area to go where God was sending him with his wife and his nephew Lot, when he left there, it was called Sumeria, not Samaria, but Sumeria. And there were many gods. Terah, we'd see this if we read verse 2 of this chapter. Terah was his father. He had a brother named Nahor. And they all, including Abraham, worshipped multiple gods. The gods of Sumeria. They were false gods. Something happened to Abraham. He was Abram then, remember? And God spoke to him and he said, go. And he went and he didn't know where he was going. And then God comes to him in chapter 12 of Genesis. And what does he say about this man, Abram? He was justified. He was made right with God by faith, not by works. And if you look at Paul's interpretation of that in the fourth chapter, of Romans, and even you could go to the third chapter of Galatians and look. It's obvious that we are saved by grace. It's all God's work, not ours. But that work has a purpose. That work is to make us new people in Christ, new women in Christ, new men in Christ. And because Christ comes to indwell us, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. The life that we now live in this body is by the faith of Jesus Christ. He lives in us and He gives us the power to overcome our selfishness, to get away from living a sagging, flabby, flaky Christian life to having a solid Christian life because we base it on His presence and His power in our lives. We must forsake all lesser gods in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says something that's 
a head scratcher on the surface. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that person must hate his father and mother and wife and sister and brother and children. Yes, and even his own life. Wow. Come on, Jesus. I thought you said we're to love our enemies. How does this square with your telling us that we're to hate these most precious people in our circle? Well, we're helped, thank God, by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 10, Jesus is quoted, and this will give clarity to why he says we're to hate all those other people. He says, if anyone loves father or mother more than me, that person cannot be my disciple. If anyone loves son or daughter more than me, that person cannot be my disciple. What was Jesus saying when he uses this word hate in relationships of the family, the most prized relationships we have? He was saying, my love for my family members should look like hate compared to my love for the Lord. In other words, I put Jesus above every other human relationship. So one of the things we wrestle with as 21st century people in the area of idolatry and false gods, we elevate our children sometimes, our parents sometimes, our siblings, our wives and husbands. We elevate those people above God. And we love them more than we love God. We're to love them. Husbands, love your wives. Is Christ's love the church? That's powerful, isn't it? Laying down our lives for our wives. That's the order of the day for us who know Christ. It would be the same for wives and all the others who make up the family to love their family members. So people can get in the way. Our plans can get in the way. I could say both of these have been idols to me in my life. Family members have been plans have, and sometimes they creep back in and they nudge God off the center of my life, and I start doing that with those people again, or our plans. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me, that person cannot be my disciple. My plans. I tell you, I was forming my own plans when I was a teenager, maybe before, maybe in elementary school. I had plans for my life, and I was, I thought, innocent in that, and probably was, but there came a moment when those plans overtook my allegiance to the Lord. And I pretty well stiff-armed stiff God for a long time. I can't remember how many years. I didn't keep track of it. My athletics, my academics, my social life, all those things took priority over my relationship to God. Every once in a while I would fit him in to my pantheon of gods. But we have to put him first in our plans too. A man who is, or a woman who is crucified, there were no evidences of women, thank God, being crucified. It was so gruesome and so humiliating. But Josephus speaks of a handful of men, less than five, who survived the cross. Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote for the emperor Trajan in recording Roman history. And he says 
that only three or four, I'm sorry I can't give the exact number, but it's under five, I know that, survived the cross. They came off the cross alive, and of those who did survive to that point, only one lived a full life. So when Christ comes and calls us to carry our own cross, what's he saying? You've got to die to yourself, your plans. Let me make your plans. Does God put people who are his children in places of responsibility? Absolutely. The Bible says in the Proverbs, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure people. And so this kings, obscure people, but this is what God would say. We are to work hard at whatever gifting and talent God's given us, but we're not to let our plans get in the way. Selfish ambition is not part of being like Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And then the third thing that serves, it's a category, people, plans, possessions. It's the last one. And in Luke 14, 34, it talks about how a person is not willing to give up all his possessions. He cannot be my disciple. God gives us everything richly to enjoy, but it's easy to worship mammon, isn't it? Money and the things which money can buy for us, pleasure, etc. We find our worth in these things and we are acting, if we do, out of our own flesh because that's what the world puts a premium on, isn't it? The people in your life, how well they do. How many parents here, I can say, my children's failure in various ways. They're not achieving what I wanted them to achieve. Sometimes those things have been very painful for me. And I love my kids, but I just need to remember, hey, dude, you failed a lot too, right? And you failed as a parent. Don't point the finger at them. Look at yourself. Be like Joshua and try to have a heart that has the heart. May my house be a house that serves God. Not just me, not your image, Mike Woods, but how about your children? Help them to come to know you and be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Well, in finishing, I have a couple of areas that are very important. How do we, how do, we do this? Now, now look. These people to whom Joshua addressed these words were people who, with their mouths, and probably in their minds, they weren't seeing any contradiction. They were saying, hey, we love the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. We want to get rid of all our idols. And he said, you can't do either one. Why did he say that? It's because there had not been a total surrender of their lives to him. It was an occasional thing, not a final thing in their heart, where they drew a line in the sand and they said, I'm going to cross this line and I'm going to be surrendered to the Lord. Interestingly, the actual geographical setting of chapter 24 is a place called Shechem. Shechem is a place, it was the place in chapter 12 of Genesis 
where Abram made that commitment to the Lord. His justification occurred at Shechem. He built an altar to worship the Lord as a result of that. Then if we go to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, Jacob finds himself at Shechem. And at Shechem, he builds an altar and he calls all of his family members to bring all of their false gods, pile them up, and he was going to bury them. He was going to have a funeral for the false gods. So we see there was surrender, surrender. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a burnt offering. Altars were for burnt offerings. Burnt offerings in the Old Testament had to do with my con consecrating or giving myself to the Lord. Like God called these who heard this message, to give, to sell out to the Lord. The second word is sanctification. Surrender is the first step, an act of the will, where I step forward and I say, I surrender. Lord, I give you control. Now, many of you say, well, I've done that. Well, I've done it too, and I've done it, and I've done it, and I've done it, and I've done it. The surrender is something that you do when you realize you need to do that in order to be the best God wants you to be in a servant's role and therefore more fulfilled. But I sin. Every time I sin, I take back control. Do you understand what I'm saying? But once you understand this importance of surrendering, then you learn to practice what has been called spiritual breathing by Bill Bright. It's when you know it, the Spirit of God notifies you of it. What you do, you confess it. You say, I'm so sorry, Lord, and you mean it. And please take control again, Lord, and help me not to go there again. And then, lo and behold, the next day, you do the same thing. And what do you do? Do you quit? That's what the devil wants you to quit. He accuses you, and he accuses us to the Lord. But what does the Lord say? He doesn't put a number limit on how many times we can confess our sins and how many times He will wash us clean. And as we progress through life, we don't have to be neurotic about this and we don't have to be worried about the other shoe dropping because why? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first part, that firm end of our salvation is justification and we can't lose our salvation. But meanwhile, we want to grow in dependence and more into Christ-likeness, don't we? And we want to bear fruit that remains, don't we? Because that glorifies the Lord. If you look at your life and there's a noticeable absence of fruit, and it, it disturbs you even to hear someone talk about it, and you try to push it aside, maybe you hadn't been walking with the Lord. I don't know. I, I, I get off on di in ditches every week. I'm sorry to say it. Your pastor has this to deal with, but I'm still battling the flesh. The Bible says it's going to be an ongoing battle till I die. That's not defeatist. That's just realistic. But I don't have to be determined, defined by that, nor do you if you know Christ. The Bible says work out your own salvation. Uh-oh. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. He's working in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. 
Leviticus says the same thing. Chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, God says, Sanctify yourselves for, and obey me, for I am the one who sanctifies you. He is working in our lives by whom? By the Holy Spirit of God. Joshua had a mentor. Moses was his name. Moses wrote down the Word of God. He taught it to Joshua. Joshua learned it. He learned it so that he could meditate on it day and night, so that he might be careful to do everything written in it. He would be fixed up by God so that he could lead Israel into conquering the promised land. But there's noticeably absent any mentee of Joshua. And the rest of the story is not a good story because they never fully won the victory. The Lord wants us to win in order that we can glorify Him. And it comes by a decision on our part. If you know Christ, the first step is surrender. No holes barred, surrender. The second step is to sanctify yourself. Well, we know the Lord's the sanctifier, but listen to what Jesus says, and we're to imitate Christ. He says, for their sakes, talking about the apostles and us, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. How was Jesus progressing? He just said, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. Joshua taught the word of God to the people in general. Moses had taught Joshua. He had discipled him. And we who know Christ have the Lord to disciple us. And please, find someone you can invest your life in to share what God's taught you. Don't lament the fact that you don't have somebody. You can go and find somebody who's not as far along as you if you're not a baby Christian, but you're growing. I finish with this one quotation by a group of pastors. They were looking for a pastor to come to their metropolitan city to carry on an evangelistic crusade. Several names were suggested around this table of leaders in the city. And the name D.L. Moody came up more than one time. And so one of the men who was there just blurted out after several mentions of Moody's name had come up. He says, do you think that D.L. Moody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? He got very quiet. And then one of the men said, not angrily, but honestly he said, no, we don't. But we know that the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Everyone who knows Jesus has the Holy Spirit. If you don't have Him, you're not saved, is what the Bible says. How do you know you have Him? Well, have you trusted in Him? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you called Jesus your Lord? You have to do that to be saved too. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. But sometimes he's marginalized. And this is the story of so many believers. You weren't taught about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so you don't know how to deal with your own fleshliness when you get off base. Well, here's the way you do with it. You say, Holy Spirit, fill me. 
That means take control of me. I surrender to you. Use me, Lord, any way you want. No strings attached. Use me, Lord. It's an act of faith based on an act of will. We will trust you, Lord. By your grace, we will trust you. And what happens then is that you enter into a walk with the Lord that is one of service. After you've dealt with the false gods in your life, and God will glorify himself through you and use you in a very significant way. Let's pray. If that's your heart today, why don't you just take a moment in the quietness of your heart. It's an act of faith. You may have a feeling when you make that, and you may not. It's not about feeling. There's nothing that would suggest that. But if you, by an act of your will and obedience to the Lord, just say, Holy Spirit, take control of my life fully, please. Thank you, Lord, for answering many prayers here today. May we walk in the Spirit as we leave this place to glorify you. Amen.